This is Romans 15:14 through 16:27. It's the last one. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I so often have been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed by your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kencray, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apainetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. 
Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trephena and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sassipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Christ Jesus. Amen. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to Josie uh, and all of you. Um, we did it. Over the past six weeks, we read through the entirety of the book of Romans aloud here uh, in our church. I hope you were able to see the central thrust of Paul's letter, which is that God is meeting all of ruined humanity with a new humanity in Christ Jesus that is available to every person by faith. That is Paul's big idea throughout the book of Romans, that no matter where you come from, no matter your background, no matter the brokenness of your past story, you are being invited into a new story in Christ. You're being invited into a new way of life, into a new way of being. You're being invited into kinship, friendship, fellowship with God, a whole new way of love in the person of Christ. Remember, Paul was writing in this letter to the Romans to a group of people who were largely made up of recent pagan converts in the city of Rome. And so these are people who would have come up in the pagan cultures of Rome. They would have come up practicing some of the religious cultic worship in Rome that included such practices as pedophilia and prostitution as part of the religious worship rites there in Rome. These are incredibly dark things that scar the human psyche and 
deeply wound the human soul. And Paul is completely confident that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the new humanity of Christ, this way of being, this way of love that God is offering to the whole world is for these people in Rome, is for these people that are coming out of that very dark place, coming out of that very warped place, that even for them, this gospel can be effective, can change hearts, can move minds, can forge new types of community in love. And he's proclaiming that to the church in Rome, but also by extension, acclaiming it, proclaiming it to all people, proclaiming it even to us, even to the people of our day. No matter how dark or broken your story may be, you are welcomed and invited into a whole new kind of story, a story of love and grace and rest and peace with God and friendship with God for all eternity. This is the rich and sweet news of the Apostle Paul. This is why he begins closing this letter to the Romans with these words in chapter 15. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Paul is completely convinced that the life of Christ within the human heart is unstoppable. That no matter the soil of the human soul, no matter the soil of the human heart, when Christ invades that heart, his life begins to manifest unrelentingly. His life begins to take over. He begins to change people's hearts, takes hard, warped hearts and begins to turn them toward a place of softness and kindness and love and gentleness, that he begins to forge new kinds of communities, new peoples, wherein people who were hostile to one another are brought together in love and affection and loyalty and gentleness and friendship. He's completely confident that this is happening even in this church in Rome. This small church in Rome, about a hundred people recently converted, most of them, to Yahweh, to the God of Scripture, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No real Scripture in their community with which to draw or learn from. No gospel account to learn from. And yet Paul is convinced that because the life of Christ is there, because the pulse of Christ is there, because Christ is alive in this people, that this church will not only survive, but even thrive. He's put his full confidence in the true living Savior, that Jesus is real and that his work is real in people and that the church in Rome, on account of this, is unstoppable. Paul is ministering to these Roman Christians not out of some angst in a lack of the power of Christ, He's ministering them in full confidence of the power of Christ. He is not teaching them throughout the book of Romans some new secret sauce that will be some new source of life for them. No, in fact, throughout the entirety of the book of Romans, Paul is engaging in the ministry of reminder. He's pushing the people of Rome back to Christ, back to the Lord that they know, back to the Lord Jesus that they first 
came to know, back to the source of life that was their first source of new love, a new way of being. He's reminding them of the power that is in Christ. This is really all that we can ever do when we minister to one another. We as Christians, we need ministry. We need instruction. We need admonishment. We need to hear the gospel over and over again. But we're not being given in that any new sort of teaching that would be a new source of life for us. All that we are doing is reminding one another. We're reawakening one another to what is already true about us. Christ is in you. You are alive in Christ. All of your needs have been met in him. Don't be so sleepy. Don't you remember who you are? Don't you remember that the God of all things has sent his own son to live with you and among you and join himself to you? That his life is coursing through you. That his pulse is alive in you. That you are his very body, empowered by his very spirit to be his hands and feet and mouthpiece in the world. That you are the very incarnation of God on the earth. Rouse yourself. Remember who you are in Christ. Walk and live in this new identity. This is the ministry of reminder that Paul speaks to, and he says this to the Romans. On some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He says, I've taught you a lot in this letter because I wanted you Gentiles, I wanted you new Christian converts to have a strong footing in the faith. But I have not taught you anything new. I have not taught you something that you didn't already know. I have pushed you back onto that sure fitting of Christ. I've reminded you of your security in him, that he is the source of life and the source of faith. He is the only source of life, and he is faithful. The Lord Jesus is faithful to animate and manifest his life in us. Don't lose heart, Christian. No matter how sleepy you have become, God has not grown weary of you, and he is ever at work bringing to bear the life of his Son in your midst. Every part of your biography is part of the long conspiracy of love in the mind and heart of God to animate the life of his son in you and to bring you into fullness of being with him. Paul is confident of this. He can hardly wait to visit Rome because he's so convinced that the pulse of Christ is there, that Jesus is alive in Rome. He's alive and at work in the hearts and the lives of the people of Rome. He can hardly wait to make it there. Of course, at this time, he has yet to visit Rome during his ministry travels, the various duties of planting churches and caring for churches throughout the Greco-Roman world have this point kept him away from Rome, but he is longing to be there and to see this work of Christ among the church there. He says, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Paul says, Jesus is conspiring in all of this. He'll allow me to come to Rome in just his time. And when I come, it will be in the fullness of his blessing. It will be in his appointed blessing. And I will be able to witness all of the richness and blessing that is in you 
and you witness all the richness and blessing that is in me. Paul's confidence in Christ in these passages is dripping from the page, as it is throughout the entirety of the book of Romans. We see that this is the only place that Paul has placed his faith and confidence. He has gone all in on the life of Christ, on the person of Christ. He is in no way hedging his bets, trying to figure out some other safety net for him to squeeze out some joy in life. He is confident that the only source of joy and peace and rest for him and for all people, for the Christians in Rome and everywhere, is Christ. And the question is, where does that kind of faith come from? How is it that Paul is so confident of this? How is he so convinced that we can go all in on Christ to this degree? How is he so sure that the church in Rome can put their faith in Christ to this degree? Sometimes we proclaim faith with great words of confidence only to be horrified when someone takes us at our word. And then we think, wait, am I as sure as I claim to be? Uh, If you are going to take my surety and run with it, am I positive that this is good counsel to you? Paul seems to be quite sure of that, quite sure that this will be the source of life for the church in Rome. We get an answer as to how it is that he's so confident in that in this closing chapter of the letter, in chapter 16. Because in chapter 16 of Romans, Paul begins this long series of personal greetings to the people that he happened to know and be in personal relationship with in the church in Rome. And for those of you who have long read the Bible or have only recently begun reading the Bible, you might relate to this experience that when we come to long lists of names or greetings of this sort, it can be very easy to read over them, read quickly through them. There's not necessarily anything here for me. I was talking to Josie in the hall just a moment ago, and she had planned to memorize this whole passage for us, but got busy in life and failed to do so. But wouldn't that be sort of hilarious if someone memorized a list of names as their choice of which chapter to memorize in the book of Romans? It's not the first one that comes to mind. Perhaps Romans 8 or Romans 5 or one of these chapters that are so rich in theology and the gospel and the promise of God. And so we skip over chapter 16 often. But many of the commentators that I consulted in preparing for this pointed to chapter 16 as one of the most crucially instructive chapters in the whole of the New Testament. In fact, Emil Brunner, who's wrote, who wrote the commentary for Romans that's one of the most classic commentaries used in the 20th century, he says as much that this chapter is the most helpful, instructive chapter in the whole of the New Testament. Paul listing names of people that he cares for and loves. And Brunner says as much because in this list, in Paul speaking about these people, we get a window into the fabric of the first century church and into the heart and priority of Paul's ministry. Paul was a person who loved people. He was a person who was in relationship with real people. He did not merely speak of his love for people as a public figure might. Surely you've encountered that, a musician or a politician or an athlete proclaiming to a large crowd, I love you all, right? 
Paul might have said as much, but he would go much further than that. And in this chapter, we see that, that Paul didn't just love the crowd, he loved the particular people. He had relationships with particular people, and it's quite staggering here. He lists 26 people in chapter 16, 24 of them by name, many of those with personal remarks, personal greetings that indicate that Paul is doing ministry at a pace that allows him to know people, to love people, to connect with people. This is quite striking here because Paul has never been to Rome. He has never visited this church in Rome. And yet he can, by name, point out 24 people who are doing life there in Rome, people that he has met on his travels through other cities, most notably, perhaps, Priscilla and Aquila, who he met during his three years in Ephesus and developed a deep, close relationship with them before they returned to Rome. Many other people who were traveling in the ancient world, Paul met them in his various places of ministry around the Greco-Roman world. And even though he was just passing through, and many of these people who made their home in Rome, their permanent home in Rome, were just passing through, nevertheless, he took time and care to develop personal relationships with those people. We get a window into the fabric of the first century church, that it was a church where people were known, where people knew one another, where people lived their lives at a pace that allowed that kind of close personal interaction. Of course, the first person that Paul mentions in chapter 16 is Phoebe. Phoebe was one who did not live in Rome. She was a close friend and colleague of Paul in the ministry whom he was sending this Roman letter with to the people of Rome. And so he commends Phoebe to the people of Rome as a trustworthy person as she's bringing this letter to them. And then the remaining names of these people are of those who live in Rome, people that Paul met along his travels. And these names that he mentions, they range from the names of slaves to the names of people who are connected in households of nobility, people who are related to friends of the emperor of Rome even. It runs the gamut. And it includes Gentiles and Jews, men and women, young and old. These are the people whom Paul knows deeply, whom he has personal relationship with. These are the people that convince him that the church in Rome is in good standing. that The church in Rome is in a place of solid footing. He's known these people well enough to know that Christ is alive in them that the pulse of Christ is beating in their veins. And having seen the evidence of Christ, the fruit of his spirit in these people, he knows that the author and perfecter of the Christian faith will not fail, that the one who began this work in these people will be faithful to bring it to completion, and that the church in Rome will benefit from the fruit of Christ as it continues to manifest in these people. This is really his only source of confidence about the church in Rome, a church of about a hundred people surrounded by a million pagans in Rome, surrounded by unbelievable cultural pressure to relent, to recant 
from a confession of faith in Christ, to go back into the ways of their upbringing, to return to the ways of their own families, to abandon this hard call of Christ. Paul is confident that they will not. He's confident because he has seen Christ alive in them. Over the um, now seven and a half years that I've had opportunity to minister in this church, I can tell you that the times of worry or angst or anxiety are always born of thinking about our congregation in terms of what we bring to the table. And there have been many times throughout the short history of this church when that temptation has overwhelmed me. I can remember a time in this church when our church finance director was a 20-year-old college student who'd never had a credit card. I think he's sitting in the back corner with a Cubs hat on. He's older now, has multiple credit cards, no longer our finance director. But there have been times in this church when it was very tempting to look at the silliness of how we were doing it all, the kind of ragamuffin nature of how it was all being put together. I can remember a time when our leader of hospitality, the one who was in charge of food and drink and welcoming people into the community, believed that Hershey Kisses were, quote, the good stuff. Um, It was a rough start for us as a church. And I can remember being worried and having anxiety about how in the world is this going to happen? How in the world is this community going to survive? And often throughout the history of our church, we've been a ragamuffin group, a group that seemingly makes little to no sense, an eclectic group of people who would not be brought together for any other reason than faith, faith in Christ. But that road of angst and worry, that faithless road of angst and worry, it's a dead end. And it happens primarily when we look at the church according to eyes of sight, according to what we bring to the table, according to what we can see naturally. But what if we were able to look at our church as Paul looked at this first century Roman church? What if we were able to see one another as Paul saw the people, these Christian converts in Rome. If we're able to see Christ, the pulse of Christ, manifesting in one another, the promise of the gospel coming to bear, the embodied life of Christ here among us, the very Spirit of God bringing the triune God of the heavens right into our midst. That's what I want us to do today, to look at our church through eyes of faith. I want us to see it together, not just today, but into the future, that we would look at one another with eyes of faith, that we would see Christ in one another, see Christ in the ways that we care and love for one another, in the ways that we forgive one another. The Catholic philosopher Jean Vanier, who has dedicated his life to the establishing of communities for disabled peoples. Vanier is in his late 80s now. He says of community formation, 
Many people are good at talking about what they are doing, but in fact, do little. Others do a lot, but don't talk about it. They are the ones who make a community live. I think he's on to something there in the spirit. It's so often people that are easily overlooked. It's so often those who are not superstars by sight, those who may not be leading in any clear, exemplary way, those who are quietly and faithfully serving. It's so often those ones who are embodying the spirit of Christ and are breathing life into the community, showing us who Christ is. And yet so many of us, I think, don't even know the names of those people who are so faithfully serving here. So as Paul did in Rome, I want to honor just a few of the many who embody Christ or have embodied Christ here in our number. Earlier this month, some of you know, Chad and Paulina Little welcomed a new baby girl into their home. I don't think they're here today, Um, understandably so. (laughs) Uh, And on the week that this new baby, Mila, was born to their family, Paulina went on to our church Facebook group to seek someone to replace her in her role caring for the babies in the nursery, understandably. And she needed someone who could fill in for her that coming Sunday earlier this month. But she mentioned in that message that she would be happy to serve on any other week. And I quote, I need some help this Sunday. I am a mom of two very energetic boys married to a restaurateur whose schedule is quite demanding. And I've had a baby in the last two days. Please excuse my need for a Sunday off, but I'm happy to serve on any other week. Where does that kind of service come from? It's quite foreign to me personally, I can tell you, but it is the pulse of Christ. It's the pulse of Christ. It's the quiet care and responsibility and love that comes from Christ. Earlier this week, Aaron Bourne, some of you know, uh, has recently taken over as our volunteer director and she's been meeting with a lot of our volunteers and a lot of our volunteer team leads and she and I met up on Monday evening to discuss and I wanted to hear from her about how that's all been going and I was a little bit concerned that you know she'd be coming back with a report that everyone's completely fried and wants to quit and you're on your own. Um, <laughs> And, uh, of course, that was not the case at all uh, when we sat down and talked. To the contrary, overwhelmingly, most of the volunteers in this church were actually asking for more ownership, more responsibility, that they want to invest more deeply into our community, that they want to serve more. These are people, many of them, who've been serving for many years, quietly, under the radar, thankless jobs oftentimes, and yet they are continually loving and serving and giving for no fanfare. Where does it come from? It's the pulse of Christ. It's the love and care of Christ leaning in to care for other people even when no one notices. 
And then I'll mention one more. A few weeks ago, we had a crisis need for prayer and care here in church on a Sunday, and I felt quite overwhelmed by the situation and went out into the foyer to look for help without really any plan. And the first person that I happened to see, thankfully, was... (laughs) Carrie Thompson. And I thought, this is a perfect person. Carrie, who many of you know and love, has been a part of our church for some years now. And it's going to be going off to protect our nation (laughs) with the military in the new year and ask Carrie to come help and serve. And of course, because it's who she is, she gave an afternoon in prayer and presence to care for a situation of crisis in our church. This is the pulse of Christ amongst us, the life of Christ amongst us, him manifesting in our midst. There's so many more that I could mention, who serve and love and pray, our community group leaders and our ministry team leaders and the moms and the dads and the friends. So many who are paying attention to the needs of other people and willingly offering their lives to other people as a manifestation of who they are, not by any other compulsion except love. This is the pulse of Christ beating here. And it's beating in every person of faith. Every person who has received Christ. Christ is alive in you. His heart is beating in you. We've been saved from our past stories. We have a new life. And we have a new way of life. A new way of manifesting life together. This word of caution from Paul at the end of this section. He's essentially saying to us, only do not let cynicism or worry quench this life of the Spirit that is within you. Don't relent from it because you can't see manifesting through eyes of the flesh what value it may give. Continue to pursue this way of being because it's who you are. I'll say this, we are a church that loves to talk about freedom. We're a church that loves to talk about the freedom that we have in Christ. It's so liberating to know that God has rescued us in Christ, that he has covered over our failures, our deficiencies, that he has met us in Christ in a way that ensures that we are with him and in him and have friendship with him for eternity. That is a great, restful, and wonderful thing to cherish. But freedom without love, it just winds up being a new sort of slavery to oneself. Freedom without love winds up with no other guide except for your own appetites. And so Paul warns the people in Rome, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Without the love of Christ, in the message of freedom, we wind up with no direction. We wind up wandering. We wind up just obeying our own base desires, our own appetites. We wind up devoting our lives 
to carving out just a little bit more free time so I can Netflix and chill. What a great purpose. It's empty to use the freedom of Christ, to use the liberty that we've been given in Christ to assuage our own desires, our own base desires. That's not who we are, church. That's not who you are, Christian. You've been given a new identity, a new way of life, a new master, a new Lord, a new spirit, new love, new resource to lay down all that you are for the sake of others, to pay attention to the needs of others, to listen carefully and to serve and to bless, to live in the life of Christ, to pour yourself out as the incarnation of God on the earth. Paul says, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Paul is confident that the spirit of Christ is alive in this church in Rome, and yet he is warning them, be wise as to what is good. Devote your energy and time to conspiring in love conspire for ways that you might bless and serve. Learn to listen carefully to the needs of your neighbors. Learn to move toward people. It's a risk. It's always a risk to move toward people. You spend social capital when you move toward someone. You risk rejection. You risk humiliation. You risk embarrassment. Love is always risky. It's always costly. But Paul is saying, this is who you are. You are not burdened in this way to assuage guilt. You are not burdened in this way to reconnect yourself to God. This is not on you. This is for you. This is the life that you have been given to live. You have been bound to goodness because you are bound to Christ. His life is our life. His pulse beats in our veins. There is no getting away. We are his people. So be reminded of it, church, and remind one another of it. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask for eyes of faith in this church to see one another in light of who you have made us to be. To see your son in one another. To see the pulse of Christ beating in hands and feet and in the words and care and service of one another. Father, I pray that you would warm the hearts of this church, that we would notice the hurting around us, that we would not wait for permission to move toward one another, that we would risk all that comes with love. Lord, lead us by your spirit to be a church reborn in the life of Jesus. Amen.